Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Just uh, very recently, Pastor Don was bringing a message to us talking about how important it was to read the Old Testament and the blessings that were in the Old Testament. He tied together some truths from the book of Leviticus to the book of Hebrews. And today I want to do something similar. I want to share a promise with you that's found in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. And when we see the promise, it's a type and a shadow, and it is fulfilled in the New Testament. And I want to show you how that applies to us. One example, when I talk about types and shadows, in, in the Old Testament, we see that, that uh, when there was uh, a need for atonement of sin, that there could be a substitute. And that was a wonderful, wonderful truth. And that substitute was a lamb. And then in the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ was actually the lamb of God, the substitute uh, for us, for me, for you, for all of us, for our sin, the sins that we have committed. And so today, there is a prophetic promise uh, that I want to share with you. And it may seem uh, like it's connected with our birth order, but uh, when we get to the end, you're going to see that this applies to every single person in here. How many of you are firstborn in your family? You're the firstborn, okay? I, I love what Dr. Dobson said, Dr. James Dobson. He said, He's talking to a large group of people. He said, your parents don't owe you anything, not anything, unless you are the firstborn. If you are a firstborn, they owe you an apology. And as a firstborn, all you firstborns understand. Your parents, you were the guinea pig. Uh, all the rules applied to you. And then they threw the rules away when your siblings came along. How many of you are a middle child? You're not the firstborn. You're not the baby, but you are a middle child. Okay. All right. All the well-adjusted kids. And how many of you are the baby of the family? Okay, so as I talk to you about this, I want to say that this message applies to each and every one of you, regardless of your birth order in your family. It, and here is, here is the truth. This, this is a prophetic promise, and I'm going to show you the reference and everything as we get into the message. But the promise is this, that the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. That is the the, um, the type and the shadow that is given to us in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, and we are going to see how that applies to each and every one of us. I believe that the Bible is filled with amazing promises for us. And when we think of all the promises, just off the top of our head, promises like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and, and uh, promises like, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory, and promises like Jesus said, I'll give you peace, not peace like the world gives, but I'll give you my peace, a supernatural kind of peace. And then if I keep my mind stayed on him, I'll have not just, I, I will have perfect peace, absolutely perfect, that God's peace will keep me. It'll be a, a guard around me. I think of the promise of, of uh, Psalm 84, that the Lord God is a sun and shield and he gives grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And yet I believe that this promise that the older will serve the younger is one of the most powerful promises that we'll ever see in the word of God. And unfortunately, it's one that is also probably the least well known. And, and as, we, as we get into the message today, I want to Un- uncover this for you and show you how this can be applied to our lives. The Christian life, I was talking with someone recently and they, were, they, they made a comment in passing. They were just talking about they were in a, in a situation, a difficult situation. They just were uh, sharing with me, man, you know, I'm just, I'm just struggling, right? I'm just, just really struggling. And I, I just, uh, the, the context of the, of the conversation was, I, I just don't feel like I should be struggling like this. It just seems like things are harder than it should be. And they were talking about their struggle and, and kind of complaining a little bit. And, and I just, I, I want to, I, I want to tell you the truth that the Christian life has always been a struggle. There's, there is an aspect to it that is a struggle. It's not a carefree life. It's not a life where we just coast and everything's taken care of and we don't, you know, how many times in the New Testament, in the NIV translation, does it say make every effort 
Make every effort. We've got to put some energy into The word of God tells us that uh, we are to train ourselves to be godly. We're, there's a part of us, it's automatically, we're justified in the sight of God. But then we go into a process of training ourselves uh, to be godly. And so there is an aspect in which the Christian life has always had difficulty. It's always been difficult. When, when the new, uh, early Christians were persecuted in the first church and scattered to, uh, throughout the then known world, uh, there were hardships and there were difficulties. There were struggles that they went through. Uh, in our life today, there are struggles that we go through. And in the future, there will be struggles in the Christian life. And, and before you turn me off and say, Pastor Paul, Oh, you're so negative. Can't you just be more positive? Can't you bring a positive word? And I, I can, I can. I'm positive that you're going to have struggles in your life. I'm positive that there'll be struggles if you determine that you're going to serve Jesus no matter what. And, and I also have to tell you the truth that struggles are not always bad. I have to tell you that there's a purpose and that they are necessary. I remember when I was a little boy, we lived about a block from the bay in South Texas, right off the coast of South Padre Island, and I ended up with some seagull shells. A, a, a nest had been, or eggs actually, the, uh, a nest had been abandoned. There were some seagull shells that brought them home, and we put them under a lamp, and they began to crack and break open. And I'm telling you, I, as, as a young boy, I was amazed that, that those those shells didn't crack open like they do on the cartoons. You know, you see a little crack and then boop, two halves and a little bird jumps. It's not like that at all. If you've ever watched a chicken hatch or any little birds, it's a struggle to get out of that egg. It's a struggle. You, you don't even see a crack all the way around. There's a little bitty hole and you see, man, he's working at it and he's trying to stretch. And, and all of that, whether it's a butterfly coming out of a cocoon or a bird coming out of an egg, that struggle is necessary in order for that, those wings to be exercised so they can extend and support that bird in flight. And if you try to help that little creature out by cracking the egg open, you, you may have doomed him to a life of being earthbound. And he will, he will not be able to fly. So that struggle is super, super important. And actually, the Bible tells us that... Uh, that there is, there is a, a certain type of joy that we can receive in the struggles that we go through. And uh, let, me, let me give you a couple of examples. There, there were a group of guys uh, in the church uh, years ago when I was a much younger man. Uh, you know, some guys fish, some guys play golf. We had a group of guys that rode dirt bikes. And we would get on dirt bikes and just, man, we had the most fun. But I'm telling you, at the end of the day, after blasting across the country, Gordon was part of that. Man, we, we wrecked, we crashed, we went through bayous and streams and hills and cut our handlebars down so we could fit between trees that were growing too close together. And we'd, we'd ride through a brush that was nothing but, wait a minute, vines. You know what those are? They're all full of stickers. And when you go through them, they say, they grab onto you and they say, wait a minute. And you just keep going and leave some skin behind. And at the end of the day, we'd be dirty and wet and tired and bloody and bruised, scraped up elbows. By the next day, we probably, half of us were limping a little bit. And the whole time uh, after that ride, we'd be talking about how much fun we had and how great it was and how so-and-so wrecked and what a spectacular thing that was. Maybe, maybe if we're lucky, he'll do it again next time because that was just exciting. And, and even with the pain and even with all of the aches and all of those and sometimes even broken bones there was we couldn't wait to do it again and 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 maybe next time make the route a little more difficult just this past february there were two teams the tampa bay buccaneers and the kansas city chiefs that met in the super bowl super bowl 55 and they competed in that super bowl and they got out there on the field and they struggled they struggled, and there was joy in that struggle. It was a glorious struggle. And at the end of that game, they were sore and tired and bruised and probably some of them bloody. But at the same time, as soon it was, as it was over and they were walking off the field, they began to plan and practice and maybe even pray that, that in the coming year, in 2022, that they would be counted worthy to struggle again in the Super Bowl of 2022. 
22. Don't let the idea of a struggle scare you. Don't let the idea of, of, of a struggle paralyze you or cause you to shrink back because the word of God tells us that, that, that there, is, uh, there are things that are developed in us. And the Bible even talks about fighting the good fight fighting the good fight. I used to read that as a child and I wonder what, what in the world is a good fight? And then I realized a good fight, a really, really good fight is one in which you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are going to win and there's no question about it. And God has, has ordained that you and I walk in victory, that we are more than conquerors, that we triumph always through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. God has invested so much in you and in me. Romans 8 said that if he did not withhold his only begotten son, but freely gave him up for us, why would he withhold anything else that we might need? in order to live and walk in victory in our lives, in our daily lives. The Bible says that he's given us everything that is necessary for life and for godliness. So if you need more faith, more hope, more love, more strength, more cope, whatever it is you need, you can come to him because he is a good and generous and benevolent heavenly father who has destined for you to be formed into the image of Christ, even though we must make every effort. Yes, come on, give God praise. So, struggle is a part of our Christian life. And I want you to understand that the biggest struggles that, that we will ever face are not struggles that we will face that come to us from the outside. The biggest struggles will not be from an opponent on the outside of us or a situation on the outside of us that opposes us. It will not be uh, your in-laws or your ex-wife or your neighbor's dog that barks all night long or your boss that has a perpetual bad mood or even your mother-in-law. The biggest struggles you and I will ever face as Christians are the struggles on the inside. The biggest enemy that we will have is the enemy. That's the biggest enemy you and I will ever face. Let me give you a couple of examples. We read about David, who was an incredible man of God, a, a, a man after God's own heart. And we read about struggles that he faced. There were outward struggles. The Bible said, says that David uh, went against lions and bears when they would come and try to steal a lamb. And, uh, you know, when you stop and think of it, it's easy just to read that and keep on going and not, not ponder that. But just think for a minute, if all you have is a little slingshot and maybe a little club and a lion comes and grabs a lamb or a bear, the Bible says that David was not content just to go after those predators and kill them. The Bible says he grabbed them by the jaw, opened their mouth, took the lamb out, and then beat the silly thing to death. Now, I'm telling you what, that's, that's pretty amazing. Not only that, but David faced Goliath as a teenager. As a teenager, faced Goliath, a man who was over nine feet tall. And he, he runs out there at him, and God gave him victory. Then, later, he becomes king, and he is defeating entire Philistine armies. And then, uh, right before he became king, he's running and hiding from, from King Saul, who's trying to take his life. I mean, over and over, we see all of these struggles, all of these outward struggles. But you know what got David? It wasn't any of those outward enemies. It was the enemy that was in a me, it was Bathsheba showed up. Bathsheba showed up. And the enemy was the lust in his heart. And that's, that's what caused David to stumble. When we read about Elijah, mighty man of God, incredible prophet of the Lord. And God used him to, to speak a word of correction and judgment over Israel. They'd fallen into idolatry. And God moved upon Elijah's heart. Elijah said, there's not going to be any rain for three years. And the crops failed and people got hungry. And, and what God is doing, he's trying to wake people up. He's trying to, trying to get their attention. Is there somebody, is there anybody who will say, man, we need to talk to God about this? Is there anybody who will say, man, we've done something wrong. Let's, let's repent. Let's return to God. And finally, finally, the Lord 
speaks to Elijah and said, this three-year period has come to an end. I, I want you to confront Israel about who I am and about, about their idolatry. And so Elijah and Ahab, the, the king, the backslidden king, the king who had, uh, was, was away from God, he, they, they decide that they're going to have this, uh, this meeting on top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, once and for all, let's settle who is God? And I want you, Ahab, I want you to bring your 450 false prophets of Baal and your 400 false prophets of Ashtoreth and I will, I will come and we'll have a contest up there. We'll offer a sacrifice and whoever's God answers by fire, let him be God. And so they gather up there and, and Elijah says, you guys go first, y'all go ahead. And so they build an altar out of stones. They put wood on top of the altar. They kill an animal and lay it as a sacrifice on top of the wood. And then they begin to pray and call on their gods and they begin to sing and they begin to jump and they get louder and they get a little more frenzied. And Elijah, after this has gone on for an extended period of time, Elijah begins to mock them. He says, maybe you're not singing the right song. Maybe you're not singing loud enough. Maybe you're not jumping high enough. Maybe you just need to do a little more. And they begin to cut themselves with knives and the blood begins to flow. And they go at it for hours until they're literally exhausted and just can't go anymore. And they give up and Elijah comes up and it's his turn now. And he takes the altar and he rebuilds it. He rebuilds it. He puts things in order because God is a God of order. And so he rebuilds the altar. He puts wood on the altar. He puts the sacrifice on the altar. He asks the men to come and dig a trench around the altar. And he says, now y'all start bringing water. Start bringing water. And they, they start bringing jugs of water. And he tells them, pour it on the sacrifice. And they pour it on the sacrifice until the sacrifice is drenched. The wood is all wet. It's sodden. The water runs down the rocks. It lands on the ground. The ground is all wet. The water runs into the trench that they've dug around it. And then Elijah prays a very simple prayer. He doesn't jump. He doesn't shout. He doesn't holler. He doesn't do anything dramatic physically. He just calls on the Lord and he says, God, just, just show yourself to your people here today. And the Bible says that God answered by fire. He answered by fire. I don't know what kind of fire it was, but you know, in my mind, it could have been something like an extended lightning bolt, you know, because the Bible says that the sacrifice was consumed. The wood was consumed. And catch this, the rocks, they were also consumed it licked up the dust on the ground and, and, and dried up all the water in the trench. And all of the people fell down and said, the Lord, he is God. I mean, it was pretty obvious at that point. The Lord, he is God. And Elisha said, I want you to take all of these false prophets, bring them down here. We're going to put them all to death and we're going to end idolatry in the land of Israel. And they did that. And as soon as they did that, the, the queen, Queen Jezebel, who was wicked, 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 sent a message to Elijah. And she says, I'm going to kill you because of what you've done. And Elijah runs away in fear and in terror because of the threat that came from this queen. So he wasn't, I want you to get this now, he, it wasn't the, the 850 false prophets on the outside that were opposing him. It wasn't the king who was opposing him. It wasn't any of that. It was when this queen said, I'm going to kill you, that threat, it was fear. It was discouragement in his own heart that caused him to trip up and he ran into the wilderness and, and was hidden away for a period of time. So sometimes it's not, it, it might not be lust like it was with David. It might be fear. It might be discouragement on the inside. That's sometimes is the enemy that is enemy. And then let me give you another example, an example of Moses. Moses had a, a, a character issue in his life and we see it a couple, on a couple of occasions. One is when Moses grew up and became a man and as he is entering adulthood, he sees that there is an Egyptian slave master who is beating an Israelite slave and they're they're just going at it and Moses can't stand it he steps in between them tries to stop and ends up taking matters into his own hands and he murders the Egyptian and buries him in the sand and he thinks he's gotten away from it when he discovers that that his crime is known and Pharaoh is looking for him he runs into the wilderness and is out there for 40 years 
40 years in the wilderness. God appears to him. He comes back to Egypt to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And they go out, you know, in a, in a, I mean, the hand of God just absolutely delivered them. All of the plagues that fell on Egypt were because of Moses' obedience. Moses was God's spokesman. Uh, uh, He and Aaron and God just devastated all of the idols. Every, Every plague that came was a direct defamation to some idol that the Egyptians worshipped. They worshipped the sun, it went dark. They worshipped the Nile, it turned into blood. They worshipped frogs and, and flies, and they were overrun with them. I mean, every single, every single uh, uh, plague was a direct defamation to an Egyptian god. And so they go out of the land, God gives them the wealth of Egypt, and uh, let, me, let, me just, let me just say this to you, just uh, a little addendum here. You know, many times we, you know, I've, how can I say this? Money is nice, it's necessary. You know, we think it's more necessary than it really is. Money is, money is an okay thing. But God blessed the Israelites with the wealth of 400 years of back wages. They had gold, they had jewels, they had silver, they had all this money. And then God takes them out into a wilderness where there's no mall and no store and no Amazon. And God was proving to them that he was their source. He was their source. Don't think that money is your source. It's nice to have money, but don't think money is your source. Don't think it's your source. So anyway, they go out, part the Red Sea. The Egyptian army comes and Pharaoh comes. God, you know, drowns all of them. They get out there. They think they're going to die of hunger. God gives them manna, rains it down out of heaven. God gives them water out of a rock, not on one occasion, but on two occasions. And the second time, the people were so complaining. They were so upset. They're complaining about Moses and, they, and they're talking about you know just it, they have a terrible awful attitude and God in his mercy instructs Moses I want you to take your rod and I want you to strike this rock that rock was symbolic it was another type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ who is our rock and God told Moses I want you to strike the rock one time and water will come out of the rock Moses was so angry with the people And he rebukes them. He says, can't you see what God has done for you? Are you going to continue to tempt the Lord? He took his staff and he hit the rock, not once, but twice. And God, in his mercy, allowed water to flow because there was a need that the people had. But God rebuked Moses and he says, you have have not honored me before the people. And he he said, because you have not honored me before the people, you will see the promised land but you will not enter in with these people. So there was, you know, Moses faced Pharaoh. He faced the army of Egypt. He faced, uh, you know, uh, need in the, in the wilderness. They, they faced, you know, a, a lack of food and water, all these things. And, and it wasn't any of those things from the outside that tripped up Moses. It was the anger issue in his heart. Showed up when he was a young man. And then showed up again a little bit later on, never, never really been completely dealt with in his life. And so those were things in his heart. Those were, that was the enemy in a me, in a me. And so here is the promise, once again, that the older will serve the younger. Just remember that. We're going to tie it all together in just a minute. The Apostle Paul even talks about this struggle in his life when he writes his letter to the Romans. In chapter 7, he says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but that's what I do anyway. One of my good friends, Dr. John Mahoney, on the inside of his Bible, he has a little poem written, and I love it. It says, uh, there are two natures, two natures beat within my breast. One is cursed, one is blessed. One I love, the other I hate. But the one I feed will dominate. That is true. That is so true. 
And as believers, we need to understand, understand that in every Christian, there are these two natures. One is sinful, one is sinless. One is born after the flesh, one is born after the spirit. Paul the apostle writes in his letter to the Galatians, he said, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature. Now, it's not just this letter to the Galatians, but in, in uh, just about all of, of the Pauline epistles, uh, you'll find lists like this. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 15, you'll read that Jesus himself talks about many of these same things and a few that aren't mentioned here in this list. But he talks about these things. And I want you to notice, he's not talking about what demons do or what the devil is going to do. He talks about our sinful nature. He said, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let me just say again, ladies and gentlemen, God has invested so much in our lives, in our redemption, in our success, in our triumph, in our being conquerors and more than conquerors. He did not spare his own son. So he's not going to hold back anything else that we need for victory. So let me tell you a little story about Abraham. Abraham was a friend of God. He's, he's called the father of the faithful. We call him the father of our faith. God called him out of a land of idolatry and he and his family made their way through a series of short uh, a series of distractions and, and uh, ups and downs made their way to the promised land, the land of Canaan. God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of nations and that he would, he would have a son from his wife, Sarah. And Sarah was, uh, was barren for uh, almost all of their life. Abraham waited for 25 years he waited on that promise that God had given him that Sarah would have a son. Sarah has a son. They name him Isaac, which means laughter. Sarah passed away. Isaac grows up. And Abraham is concerned about his son marrying and marrying well. And I just want to say, parents, pray, 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 pray. Pray that your children will marry well. Do everything you can to encourage your children to marry another believer who's strong in the faith. Do everything in your power to encourage your kids to be involved in, in the youth group, be involved in what's going on, where they put them in a place where they can meet and interact with other young people who have a heart for God, who are, are they care about their faith and they're moving uh, in the right direction. And so Abraham was concerned about this. He called his servant uh, to come, uh, um, Eliezer, he, his servant Eliezer, he called him to come. He says, I want you to go, and I don't want you to find a wife for my son in this part of the country. I want you to go back to our homeland, and I want you to find among our relatives, those of, who have a common faith with us, I want you to find a suitable young lady for my husband's, uh, for my son's wife. And so Eliezer takes this job and thank God he was a faithful man and he was a man of prayer. And so Eliezer uh, gathers up, the Bible uses the plural term, gathered his camels, camels, and he loads them up with gifts and he sets off to find a wife. And he gets back to the ancient homeland where Abraham's relatives are. And he, in part of his prayer was, God, help me to know that, that I'll that I'll find the right young woman and, and Lord, uh, let this be a sign that if I ask her for water, that she will not only give me a drink of water, but she will also water my camels. So he's looking for someone with character, someone who is selfless, someone who is, is, has the gift of hospitality. And this is a huge, huge deal because camels will drink, I, I started looking on the internet to find out what I could about, cam camels will drink anywhere from 32 to 53 gallons of water. That's a big drink. 
You thought you had a big gulp at Circle K, but let me tell you what, 53 gallons of water and the Bible says camels, plural, plural. So there's more than one. He gets into the town. He sees this gal. She is a looker. And he says, man, wouldn't that be something if she was the one? And so he asked her, hey, would you get me a drink? I'm a traveler. I don't have a water pot. She says, absolutely, I'll get you a drink. She, she goes to the well, lets her water pot down in the well. Now think, we're not, talking, we're not talking super thin plastic jugs that don't weigh anything. We're talking about a clay pot, okay? It probably weighs couple of pounds by itself and then you fill it up with two and a half three gallons of water and you know you're carrying something she brings that to him and says here uh, let me give you a drink and and while you're enjoying this drink I'll also draw water for your camels plural so again I don't know how many camels I don't know if it was two or if it was ten but she starts you know this process of letting her water jugs down, bringing them up, carrying them over to the trough and pouring them in for these thirsty camels that have just trekked across the country uh, to, uh, to find her. So uh, Eliezer goes home with her and tells her family about his mission and how God answered prayer and how she not only gave him a drink, but watered all of his camels and surely God is in this thing. And he gives her gifts of gold and silver and precious jewels and her family's all excited and she's all excited. And, and uh, so she says, I'm, I'm willing, I'll, I'll go back with you, you know, and, and marry your master's son. I'll do that. And her family says, well, we bless you. Go ahead and, and have a great life. And so she gets on a camel and they come back and she meets Isaac is out in the field. He's waiting. He has been, been out there for some time. He's still grieving over his mom. And uh, so uh, Isaac and Rebecca come together as husband and wife. And for a period of time, Rebecca is barren. And so let me pick up the story in Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. She became pregnant. And the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? I remember when, uh, when my wife and I were in that season of our life where we were having kids and I don't remember which child it was. I don't think it was our firstborn, but it was either our second or thirdborn. Uh, before I'd preach, I'd be down here on the front row and my wife would, would be there with me, uh, especially during those seasons when she was pregnant. <laughs> I remember one time, I couldn't help but laugh. She's standing there, she's big and pregnant. We're getting close to delivery time. Her, her entire belly just went, whoop. I don't, you know, I mean, I've seen the elbows and the knees and all that, you know, make a certain, but this entire belly just boop, moved over and we were laughing, you know, the music was praise and worship and uh, I guess maybe that baby was in there enjoying all that. But, but there is some turmoil going on inside Rebecca and she's like, what is happening to me? What is going on? And she says, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you this is the exact response? This is the kind of thing that all of us need to get into the habit of doing. When there's any circumstance, any situation, anything that's going on in our life, before we check Google, before we call our mom, before we talk it over with our friends and ask everybody else what they think about it, we need to get in the habit of inquiring of the Lord. We need to ask, what does God's word say? What does God's word say about this? We need to be a people who get back to the book and find the answers that God has given us in the word of God. So verse 23, the Lord said to her, how about that? She inquired, God answered. God wants to speak to us. I heard somebody say one time, I just wish God would speak to me. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I find that God speaks a lot better than I listen. And, and I, I, if I work on anything, it needs to be on my listening, not trying to get God to speak. Because uh, to be honest with you, if you're not reading your Bible, that's part of the reason you're not hearing what God's saying. Because he's put it, he's put it right there. So the Lord said to her, and here's our, here's our prophetic promise. Here it is right here. It's, it's Genesis 25 Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two people from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. Now, before any of the middle children or babies look at your older siblings and say, uh-huh, 
There it is in the Bible. You're going to serve. That's, this has nothing to do with natural birth order in families. This verse applies to everybody in this room, whether you're, you're the, the, the firstborn, a middle child, or the baby. It makes no difference. It applies to each and every one of us. Look at verse 24. The time came for her to give birth, and there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heels, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And look at the, here, here they are, two boys came out of the same womb. They are twins, but they don't look, look alike, and they don't act alike. They're very, very different. Uh, in looks, one is smooth, one is very hairy. Uh, in nature, Jacob liked to cook, maybe decorate, He was artistic, uh, creative. Esau liked to hunt and kill things and smear blood on his face. In character, Esau was all about satisfaction right now in the physical, and Esau valued the spiritual. And we see these dual personalities in these two boys that came out of the same womb. And in in reality, that that same truth is in every single one of us. We don't have to have babies in the womb to demonstrate the two natures. There were times when we look at at Jacob's life, when we look at at his life, we see how how these two natures were inside of him. These two natures are inside of each one of us who have given our lives to the Lord. In Genesis 33, from Genesis 33 to Genesis chapter 50, it's amazing to me that that the Holy Spirit at times identified Jacob by his birth name, Jacob, but then at other times identified him with the new name that, that God gave him, which was Israel. And those two names depict two different natures. Jacob was the old nature, the old sinful nature, the old conniving nature, the old tricking nature. It was the old unbelieving nature. And Israel was the new nature. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe his word. I'm going to trust the Lord. And, th- and from these verses, from Genesis chapter 33 through chapter 50, you'll find at times, sometimes one, from one verse to the next, that the Holy Spirit has called him by these two different names describing these two different natures. Let me give you an example. In, in chapter 45, beginning in verse 25, his, uh, Joseph's brothers came back from Egypt. They discovered that Joseph was not dead. He's in fact the prime minister of Egypt. They come back to their grieving father, who's still grieving after all these years that his son Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. They come back and they, they come to their father and he's called Jacob. They come back to Jacob, the old nature, the unbelieving nature. And they say, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he's the ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob was stunned for he did not believe him. That's the old nature. I can't believe. I can't believe. I just can't believe. And when they told him all the words of Joseph that he'd spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it's enough. I believe it. Joseph's alive. I will go and see him before I die. And you see those two natures, the unbelieving nature and the nature that latches on to the promise. And here is, once again, here's the promise that the older will serve the younger. The birthright, as, as I began, when I read that verse in Genesis, is like it it was like the light came on, but I didn't understand it. But that, that phrase just stuck with me. The older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. And I just thought how contrary that was. How can this, how can this be? Because the whole principle of the birthright throughout the Bible was that the eldest, the firstborn, was the one who got the double portion. They, he was the one who got the blessing. And then the Holy Spirit began to show me. And this is all through the Bible. But I'm just going to show you a few examples. Just a few examples examples of, of how, how this, the elder will serve the younger, how this worked out uh, practically. Jacob had a bunch of boys. He didn't just have, have Joseph and Benjamin, but he had a bunch. He had Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Ash. He had 12 sons. And Joseph is down there. He's number 11. And the promise is that the, he was the one that the hand of God was on. 
He was the one who told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God sent me here ahead of you to spare your lives. He became the savior of his family and the nation that was to come from them. The elder, you remember, they were all upset because of his dreams. What makes you think we're going to bow down to you? What makes you, you're the the kid. What makes you think we're going to serve you? And yet that promise was fulfilled in his family. And then Joseph, when he was delivered from the prison cell and made prime minister over all of Egypt, he he was able to take a wife. Two sons were born to him, Manasseh and Ephraim. And before his father Jacob passed away, Joseph wanted his dad, Jacob, to bless his sons. And so he brings his two boys to Jacob. And he, he very carefully, if you read it, the Bible is very, he, it talks about how careful he is to set them in front of his father so his father's right hand will rest on Manasseh's head because Manasseh is the firstborn, he's the oldest. But when Jacob, who is half blind, reaches out his hands to bless his grandsons, he does this. And Joseph is upset. He says, no, dad, no, no. Put your hands this way because Manasseh is the eldest. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to move my hands. He says, your, your oldest, he says, Manasseh is going to be great too. But the blessing rests upon Ephraim. And he blesses those two boys. When we begin to look through scripture, uh, we see this over and over how God's, God's blessing rested on Abel. And yet Cain was his older brother. We see that God's blessing and God's hand rested on Moses. But Aaron and Miriam were his older siblings. How many of you remember the story about Gideon? And the angel came to Gideon and said, you mighty man of God, God's going to use you in a powerful way. He says, you got the wrong address. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, my clan is the least in all of Israel. My family is the least in all of our clan. And I am the least in all of our family. And yet the hand of God was on Gideon and God used him and anointed him to be a mighty deliverer for Israel. Then we come to David. How many of you remember when uh, Samuel, the prophet, God said, I want you to go to Jesse's house and you're going to anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel. And he comes to Jesse's house. Jesse lines up all of his boys, starting with the oldest, Eliab, and then down. And and Samuel thinks, surely this is the one. He's big and strong and tall and handsome. He's got to be the one that God's chosen. And God said, nope. He said, I don't look like you look. Uh, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at a man's heart. And it wasn't the oldest and it wasn't the next one or the next one or the next one or that he went through seven of David's brothers and finally Samuel says to Jesse do you have any more boys they said well you know there's little David he's out watching the flocks they said call him in because we're not going to eat until David gets here David walks in the youngest of the family and God says to Samuel he's the one anoint him and he is anointed And I'm reading all this. I'm seeing all these examples in scripture. And then, you know, I see Solomon who took David's throne. And Solomon is not the oldest of David's sons. And I'm thinking, how how does this work? Because we've got the birthright, the principle of the birthright. And and yet I see this, this principle. How does this work? And then I got over in the New Testament and I saw the fulfillment of this. And if you have a Bible, I want you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read out of the Amplified Version, but it, it will, you'll see the message no matter what version you're looking at. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, an individual personality. And the last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit, restoring the dead to life. But it is not the spiritual life which came first, but the physical, and then the spiritual The first man was from out of the earth, made of dust. He was earthly minded. The second man is the Lord from out of heaven. Now those who are made of the dust are like him who was made first of the dust, dust, earthly minded. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are heaven heavenly minded and just as we have borne the image of the man of dust so shall we and so let us also bear the image of the man of heaven now to clarify let me i want to ask everyone in here a question and i'd like for you to respond out loud 
okay? I want to ask you, when were you born? And I don't want the day and I don't want the month. I just want the year. So think about what year you were born. I'm going to ask you, when were you born? And I want you to answer by saying the year of your birth. And please, please answer out loud, okay? So here we go. When were you born? Okay, now I want to ask you another question. And again, I don't want the day or the month. I just want the year. Uh, Some of you, it'll be very easy. Some of you may have to think a little bit, but I want the year. When were you born again? Okay, okay. So let's back up and let's, let's do those two questions again. First question, when were you born? Okay, when were you born again? Who's older? Who's older? The, the physical man, the natural man, or the spiritual man? Okay, let me read this verse to you again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. But it is not the spiritual life which came first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. And the promise is that the older will serve the younger the older will serve the younger that old nature that tries to rise up from time to time the word of god is against that old nature the word of the lord is against as a matter of fact to me that's that just brings so much enlightenment when you read romans chapter 9 and some people are all confused about predestination and you read how god says uh Uh, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I've rejected. When as yet, God said that about them, when as yet neither one of them had done anything. When you look at it in the light of this verse, that God rejects the flesh, but he he rejoices over the spirit man. He he loves the spirit man, but he's not all that excited about the old carnal sinful nature. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that God has promised victory over that old nature that wants to rise up in us. That old nature that wants to be offended, that old nature that wants to hold a grudge, that old nature that wants to not forgive, that old nature that that wants to get angry, that old nature that wants to tell people off because you're on my last nerve and I'm just sick and tired of you. God wants the new nature of forgiveness and love and joy and peace and his blessing and his power to overwhelm that old nature and keep it submitted and surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. God has ordained. God has promised victory in this area of our life that our old nature that says you ought to get mad or you ought to you ought to drown your sorrows or you you just you need to take care of your needs because there's nobody else to do that I want you to know that God has promised that he would supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory and God has created my body to be the servant of of what he's put inside of this body. So my feet should not just go wherever my body wants to go. My feet carry me to where there are needs. My hands are not to be used for violence or or for discouragement or to hurt people, but my hands are to be yielded uh, to the Lord for his work, for his purposes, to help, to hold, to comfort, to strengthen. My, My mouth is to be a fountain of life and encouragement and blessing, not not cursing. My lungs were given to me so that there is a constant flow of thanksgiving. I have breath to praise God and breath to give God thanks. The older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. God God has given you that prophetic promise. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for all that you have provided for us. I thank you for your blessing, your goodness, your grace, your power. And I thank you, Lord, that you have already made a way for us to be more than conquerors, for us to triumph always through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You've made a way and given us a promise. Lord, Peter wrote in his letter to the church that because of these great and precious promises, Because of these promises you have given us, through these promises, we become partakers and participators in your divine nature. 
God, I thank you. I thank you. Your provision for us is extravagant. Your provision for us is bountiful. Your provision for us is extraordinary. Lord, you are majestic. You are mighty. You are awesome. And we stand in awe of all that you have provided for us and all you have done for us. While this is an amazing promise, and it applies to each and every person who's given their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be some here today who've never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. It is a settled fact that Jesus is the Lord. The, the question is, have we surrendered our lives to his Lordship? And I want you to know that, that the promises that God gives to us are promises that are the children of God, not by, not by creation but children by birth, by the second birth. That second birth is described for us in the word of God. And we're told how we can experience it, that if we will pray, if we will come to God, if we will admit our condition, that we are sinners in need of a savior, if we will believe in our heart that Jesus is the son of God, that he took our place on the cross and rose from the dead physically. And if we will confess with our mouth the lordship of Jesus Christ and surrender to his lordship. The Bible says a miracle can occur in our hearts and we can be changed. The, the, the autopilot in our hearts can be turned and our, the direction of our life refocused if we will surrender to the Lord Jesus and if we will ask him to be our savior. I want to pray and I want to lead I want to lead this entire church in a prayer of commitment and salvation to the Lord. But if you are here today and you've never made that commitment to Jesus, you'd say, Pastor Paul, I want that more than anything else. I, I want to know that, that I have experienced the second birth, that I've been born again, and that I, I am a child of God, that my name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And there's no question that when this life comes to an end, that I will be in heaven with God. If that's you, and you say, Pastor Paul, pray with me today. Pray with me. Would you just lift your hand? I just want to know who I'm praying for. Is there anyone here? Just lift it up real high, real high, real high. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's all pray together. If you just repeat after me, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Lord, I confess that I am a sinner. I've gone places I shouldn't have gone. I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've said things I shouldn't have said. I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from my sin and I run to Jesus. I embrace Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He lived a sinless life, that he went to the cross in my place, that he rose on the third day for me. I, I thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. And I proclaim with my mouth that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Lord, I'll live for you. I thank you for your amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.